Hi, everybody. This is Jill Garvin, the Director of Psychological Health for the 102nd Intelligence Wing. I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, today, I want to talk about COVID and drinking. Uh, right now, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot about the increase of alcohol consumption in, in our society. And I have also noticed in my office in psychological health that there's also been an increase in drinking as well. And I want to have a conversation about that, a no-judgment conversation, and, um, and, and talk about some different ways to, to look at it, to, to deal with drinking. Um, and I have a guest today. His name is Todd Whitridge, and he is a treatment advocate of recovery at Recovery Centers of America, and he's going to share a little bit about himself. And I'm just hoping to provide a little bit of um, education and, and some normalcy around, um, you know, we all kind of have our thing, things that we struggle with. Um, I also have an alcohol-free lifestyle. And so I think it's important to reduce the stigma and to normalize that a little bit more. And the military is definitely, there's much more of a stigma around, um, around asking for help. So hopefully this conversation can help with that. So Todd, thank you for coming on. And yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to um, work for the Recovery Centers of America and whatever else you'd like to share. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's nice to be here. Um, I come from a pretty solid military family, although I didn't serve myself, um, so I have a great deal of respect for the armed forces. My father was in the Navy, um, and uh, my younger brother is a United States Marine, so um, I have some familiarity with the culture, at least, um, so it's a, I do appreciate you inviting me here today. Um, so I, um, hmm, I spent the first uh, 20 years of my career in technology startups, um, mostly advertising and media-related um, technology companies. And um, I, um, I had some success. Um, I had some failure, but I also had some success. And it's an extremely fast-paced, high-pressure um, environment uh, that, uh, you know, that, that I think, you know, led... I think everyone kind of jokes about their industry being a heavy drinking industry, but I think in reality, everyone where there's stress, there's drinking um, because it's one of the best self-medication tools out there. I actually had a doctor say to me once, the, the problem with alcohol is that it works. Um, and he joked that if he could, if he, he's like, if I could prescribe it safely, I would. Um, but um, so, yeah, so there's, you know, there was a, there's a lot of that in my story. Um, so I continued on in that life um, uh, for a while, and I was, uh, I was drinking myself to death. Um, everyone around me knew it. Uh, alcoholics like to think that we hide well, and we don't. Um, and uh, although we think we really do, we're certain that we're, we're doing a good job at that, but we're not. Um, but the problem is, is that uh, my challenge was that everything in my life outside looked okay. Um, the job looked good. I was doing my job. I was showing up to work every day. I was performing actually quite well. Um, 
even while killing myself with alcohol slowly. Uh, yeah, can I just interject quickly? Because sure. a lot of people think that if you have that someone with an alcohol problem, you know, it's someone that you see living under a bridge and, you know, that's homeless and that's, uh, you know, just a slow bottom alcoholic yeah. drunk. And, and really, most people with alcohol problems are very high functioning, highly educated. And um, yeah, so. Yeah, and I think that's, that's another challenge. That's one of the biggest challenges. Um, and for me, um, I just, you know, I, I was, I was, I'm, I'm, I think in some ways I'm unique and that I knew I had a problem. I just, I just thought it was something I could fix later. Um, I pointed to external forces, external things, um, the work. Um, in, in my twisted mind, all I needed to do was get rich enough. And as soon as I was rich enough, I could just, then I would fix this problem. Um, and, you know, I, and it's, it's interesting. You're, the, the human mind has a very good way of convincing you um, that you're capable of doing things. And the problem is that alcohol is stronger than that. Um, you know, I... So I, yeah, I, it's funny. I wasn't even, you know, I was performing well. I was performing very well. It was a, you know, I, I eventually have gone back and talked to my human resources, uh, my head of human resources. The last company I was at was very successful. And we started with five people. We were five people. When we started, we grew to 150 people. And I was head of all business development. And, and, um, and I was responsible for a lot of those large clients. So while being, um, um, a person that suffered from alcoholism, I was closing deals with JetBlue, American Express, Starbucks, and a lot of these other large national brands. So I just, I could convince myself. And, you know, I, I have gone back to her and said, what, 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 what was going through? You know, she's a friend of mine. We, we all built that company together. I'm like, curious, what was going through your mind? She's like, I didn't know how, to, I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't know, you know, my hands were tied beyond, you know, kind of gently nudging you, um, the tools just weren't there. And um, largely for most organizations, they simply aren't there to facilitate that conversation. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more. But the, um, so this continued until, you know, I, you know, I think lots of people, whenever I share my story, I'm always talking about, you know, I was a highly functioning alcoholic until I wasn't. Um, and that happens, I think, for everyone that suffers from this. Eventually, it does catch up with you. You can't outrun it. Um, so it eventually caught up with me, and then I began my journey of getting better. Um, took me a couple tries, uh, like it takes most people. Took me three tries, three real tries, um, with some stumbling in between. Um, and then the last time I went to treatment, I did go to inpatient treatment. The last time I went to Recovery Centers of America for inpatient detox and residential, um, which comprises the first 28 days of most inpatient treatments. And then I came down to Cape Cod to do an aftercare program, um, got very involved in meetings and stuff like that, and, you know, continued on with my life. And I thought I was just going to go back to my old career. That's when a, um, I ended up in a conversation with Recovery Centers of America. They, instead of going back to my old career, they suggested I come join them um, and uh, represent them. So now what I do is I represent Recovery Centers of America on Cape Cod, all of the south coast of Massachusetts, and the state of Rhode Island. 
and I do what what I do in that role is I work with people like yourself, um, people like hospital hospitals, social workers, case managers, um, prim, you know, primary primary physician, primary care physicians. I work with therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, um, law enforcement. You name it. Anyone that comes into contact, community health organizations, anyone that comes into contact with someone that might need help. Um, and then I act as the point of contact to refer them in and then work with them, sometimes work with the families and then the patient themselves to get them into treatment. Wow. Yeah. It sounds very rewarding. Um, why do you think... Yeah, it's a big change. How does treatment... <laughs> yes, it's a very different from, yeah, corporate lifestyle to uh, substance abuse treatment. Um, what is treatment like? Um, so treatment today... What most treatment looks like um, is, um, and I want to preface this with, you know, the way addiction treatment has been designed, um, the way the way it is presently constituted in the United States is um, really set up to treat the acute state. So when someone is at their bottom and they're they're chemically dependent upon their on their drug of choice, whether it be alcohol or or or, or other drugs, um, and so. When you have that chemical dependency, um, it is important for you to be detoxed. Um, and detoxification, the process of detoxification is really the medically supervised and medicated process of removing that substance from your body safely. Uh, that's extremely important. Um, I have a good friend who passed away um, trying to do it on his own. Um, I know many other people. Um, it's very real. Uh, you should never, ever, ever try and stop drinking cold turkey on your own. Um, it can kill you. That is very real. Even if it's something where you haven't experienced symptoms in the past, the human body is a weird thing. You never know when it's going to not respond well to that. Um, detox without medical supervision is violent and it's painful um, and it's scary and it very oftentimes doesn't work because the pain caused by that process drives the person back um, to what they know is going to make them feel better which is another drink um, so most addiction treatment comprises of um, starting with a detox um, the detox that's typically five to seven days it's extremely comfortable um, usually um, depending on which facility you go to most of them in the state of Massachusetts are, are very reasonably comfortable at least um, and it's a lot of the first few days is a lot of sleeping um, you know when we go into treatment when you're at that point that you're going into um, detox you usually haven't been eating great you usually haven't been sleeping all that well um, so there's a lot of sleeping and just regaining your strength why the, the you go through that that process of separating your body physically from the substance. Um, beyond that, we really move into the clinical. Um, most facilities will start clinical process um, you know, while you're in detox as far as meeting with your primary therapist, um, doing groups. Um, and really this is, you know, this is about just sort of starting to open your eyes up to what the reality is about you know, addiction and substance use disorder. Um, I, when I do things like this, I typically stay away from clinical language because most people don't understand what that means. Yeah. So substance use disorder is the clinical term for addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is that, yeah. it, that we're talking about. So, um, so then you get through that, you get through that um, and in a perfect world, you will stay in care. Um, 
there's very little data out there um, that tells us exactly what works and what doesn't work. Um, the data that we do have says the longer you stay engaged in treatment, the better your chances are at long-term sobriety. So um, you should stay and stay for the full sort of 28 to 30 days, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, then, so after detox, you go to residential um, or clinical stabilization, um, which is also inpatient. You stay there, you sleep there, um, you eat there. Uh, you it, It's sort of getting you back into, this is one thing that the military audience will have a, a, a firm understanding of. Um, you get back to a regimented schedule of, of living your life. You know, you wake up at exactly the same time. You make your bed, you go, to, you go to breakfast, you have a very scheduled day, structured day, lunch, um, and, you, and you go to groups and you meet with your therapist. And um, it's a lot, you know, I think everyone is petrified of going to, quote, rehab, um, both of the negative connotation to the word as well as just not knowing. You know, it's interesting. Addiction treatment is one of those things that no one talks about unless they absolutely have to. You know, um, families are always kind of seemingly broadsided by this. And then they just, when they're faced with it, um, or the person's faced with it, they don't even know who to call uh, because it's just not something that people talk about. It's not something you talk about with your neighbors like you would if it was like a good back doctor or a good, you know, a good psychiatrist even. You know, those are more easily discussed nowadays. Nobody talks about addiction treatment. Um, so nobody knows where to go. Um, so yeah, you get in there. It's 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 not scary at all. It's comfortable. Yeah. It's easy. Um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about a lot about this this challenge that we're facing. This very real disease. You know, I was one of those people a long time ago that didn't think it was a disease. I thought it was a will matter of willpower. Um, it's not. You know, you know when when you get to that point, you're sick, and you need you need medical help to get better. Yeah, and I also like um, the analogy of it being an allergy uh, for, for some folks that when certain people take a drink of alcohol, their body responds differently than, than others. Do you think that uh, you're talking about the physical addiction of alcohol? Can someone have a problem with alcohol without being physically addicted? Yeah, and, and you can also be chemically dependent and not be addicted. Um, right. both, both are very real. Um, I think that's the that's the that's the bigger issue uh, that is it's that people kind of look at it as one um, yeah. and it shouldn't be looked at as one. Uh, there's lots of people that are sort of um, episodic uh, alcoholics, um, and you know they think just because they're not drinking seven days a week that they're not an alcoholic. When or in the morning. Or in the morning. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. They have a, most people that don't have a that think they don't have a problem have a little checklist in their head. Yeah. Um, and I think most people will find that if, the, if, first of all, if you have a checklist in your head of why you're not an That's alcoholic, yeah, yeah, you're probably an alcoholic, um, you know, cause normal people don't have that problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to realize that, that, that it's not one, one, one size fits all, you know? So how do you know, like what are, <clears throat> you know, again, people will sort of take that, little online test or or they will compare it to what they sort of think you know worst case scenario is so how does one know when when alcohol and and it could be other things too you mm -hmm. know it could be prescription medication it could be food it could be gambling um how do you know when you have a problem 
the best the best definition I've ever heard for addiction is repeating any behavior despite negative consequences. Yeah. Um, and I I think that that's a pretty easy one for people to ask themselves honestly. Um, like if you continue to, even if it's, let's say it's just once a week, let's say you, you once a week, you're always getting blacked out. And when you wake up, you don't remember anything or you cause some damage or, um, or maybe you didn't, but your, your, your spouse is really angry at you because of things you said or anything. Um, and then you do it again. Um, and you do it again and you do it again and you say to yourself, well, it's not, a, it's not an issue because I'm only doing it once a week. Um, I promise you if or that's Or once the, a month. Or once a month, yeah. yeah. I promise you if that's the case, eventually it will get worse. And I think a lot of this conversation, I like that you're bringing it up because a lot of this conversation stems back to what I, kind of the reason I got into this, which is the entire addiction treatment industry and the science and, and the, the practice of it in general in the United States is focused entirely on treating it at the acute state. Um, it's always about inpatient. It's always about detox and residential. And that's not because of shortfall of the, the, the medical practice. That's because of necessity. Um, that's because we only have this conversation with people when they need that level of care. Uh, what I really want to do um, and what I think would better serve humanity is to remove the stigma to the point and provide the tools to the point where we can have these conversations further upstream. We've spent this entire last hundred years focused on pulling people out of the water right before they go over the waterfall. You know, like most of my, my patients are coming from hospital emergency rooms from an overdose or an alcohol-related incident, um, or they're coming from law enforcement, or they're coming from, you know, um, a threat from their family, you know, um, you know, or, or work, you know, either, either fix this problem or you're losing the job or either fix this problem or you're losing the wife, you know, or, or the husband. We have to, like, in order to make it a really impactful change, we have to elevate, we have to bring this conversation to a point where we're getting people before they even fall in the river. Um, right. So we're not just desperately hoping we can get them out before they go over the waterfall and die, um, which is where we're focused now. We need to change that. Yeah, one of the things, I, I was talking to you about this before we started, during COVID, I read a lot of different things, and I, I've never really been an Instagram person, but um, there are all these sober movements and alcohol-free groups and subgroups, and I had no idea that, like, the alcohol-free there's like this whole movement. It's become very trendy. Yeah. yeah, very trendy. They don't <clears throat> label anything, which I, I think it's awesome because it does help uh, reduce the stigma. And like you said, one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. And so I encourage people to go on there and and just it I just discovered this whole whole new world and and different writers and there's all this um, they call it quitlet, you know, different literature around quitting, not just alcohol, but quitting negative behavior. Yeah, and no, things that no. don't that don't serve you. And and there's another book by Annie Grace. Uh, well, one thing one, one thing I love about this movement is that um, so this just consciously sober um, movement or whatever. Uh, there's also different names is this, um, 
you know, is the fact that like the big one of the biggest fears that anyone that struggles has is what life is going to be like after. You know, like they think that life's going to be boring and then they're going to be ostracized and then they're going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to go to the ball game and enjoy a beer and that's going to be terrible and they're not going to be able to have, you know, drink champagne at their daughter's wedding and you hear these all the time and this, and then how am I going to hang out with the guys and all, all these things? Or how am I going to go fishing? Like all these things. Um, and one thing that if anyone actually, you know, anyone that's listening to what I'm saying, I really want them to remember this, which is everything gets better. I was so convinced that nothing would get better, that after I got sober, I would be sober and that would make everyone else happy, but I would be miserable. And that would just be my life. Life was going to be yeah, so but, boring. Yeah. And it's so not true. You know, um, I can say with 100% confidence and most people that, that have gone through this know that everything gets better. Food tastes better. You know, music sounds better. Colors look better. Sounds, everything's... You connect with people You connect. Better, your relationships yeah. are so much more authentic. Your relationships with your family improve. Um, work, everything, every, and everything gets easier. All the stuff that used to, you know, because alcohol creates a lot of mental illness that wouldn't be there without the alcohol. And a lot of that anxiety and the fear and the, and the anger and all that stuff that you used to have is gone because you have the ability to live in this sort of um, much more awakened state. Right. You know, I used to actually, it's funny, I used to say everything gets better until last winter. The only thing that doesn't get better is ice fishing. That's the only thing <laughs> yeah. that doesn't get better. But other than that, everything else yeah. gets better. Um, yeah, I read somewhere that um, that alcohol, like having, when you have anxiety, alcohol is like a pouring fuel on that. And I have a lot of people when they come in and see me and we start exploring their relationship with alcohol, you know, they will often say like, why well, don't, you know, okay, yeah, I'm drinking while I'm going over the bridge and you know, I, I use it to help me sleep, but that's not my problem. I have PTSD, or I have depression, or I have um, anxiety work disorder, stress, or yeah, 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 or anxiety, and and again, because people are, are horrified to think. That, I mean, they'd much rather have PTSD than an alcohol problem, uh, <clears throat> and and so we always talk about yeah, but we can't get to those underlying those other issues as long as you're medicating with alcohol. So I encourage people to look at their um, relationship with alcohol. I was going to mention this book by Annie Grace. It's called This Naked Mind. And it's not about labeling. You know, she really looks a lot at, and we have a lot of really intelligent people here. She looks at a lot of science, what alcohol physiologically does um, to our system, to our nervous system. And um, it's it's a pretty amazing book that that has gotten a lot of people sober as well without having without having to label anything, um, and like you said, I, and I and for myself, like the freedom, you know, if you're constantly asking yourself or trying to moderate or p putting rules around your drinking. Yeah you know, then, yeah, it might be a little bit of an issue. And you think that life is going to be boring, but actually, you know, what, yeah, what comes to mind is just freedom. One, thing, just, that, one thing that I always kind of find amusing is uh, when, when people quit drinking and then all of a sudden they discover how much time mm -hmm. drinking took up. 
Yeah. Like, cause like, it, like I, and it, it's, and hangover. It's, yeah. It's not very noticeable until you quit drinking. Then you're like, where did all this free time right. come from? Um, yeah. And you can fill it with really cool, meaningful things. You can fill it with those hobbies that you have stopped doing, you know, right. largely. You can fill it with time with family that you used to kind of like avoid at all costs or keep as short as possible because, you know, it was going to cramp your drinking. Um, you know, and all of a sudden you have all this free time and you have a clear head and you have more motivation and you have more energy. And um, yeah, it's, it's something that, that it's really, but that being said, I do recognize, and it's important for everyone to recognize, when you are active, it is impossible to see that. The human brain is so hijacked by alcohol, and your reward pathways are so damaged, and your thinking is so off that it's impossible to see that. So the only way to get someone from that is, first of all, and I think that's what really is important. And what all all the all the recovery methodologies out there and systems. So there's many of them. There's the fellowships like AA and NA and Refuge Recovery and Smart Recovery. Mm, yeah. There's obviously treatment. There's all what you mentioned. All these very sort of um, <clears throat> smaller recovery communities that have popped up online on Instagram and Facebook. Um, these are all great tools for connecting with just just connecting with a few other alcoholics that have recovered or that are in recovery, that are living these lives, because you're not going to make that connection. You're not going to believe it until you actually hear from someone that went through it is on the other side. Yeah. You know what I mean? You might not even be able to hear it through me or you on this podcast. Like sometimes it's going to, because I I remember reading and, um, you know, some of the reading and some of the podcasts and the self-help stuff, there was still that third, that, that, that layer in between me and that, um, where I could kind of get the, the idea, but it wasn't until I started connecting with people in long term. The, the person that made the most impact on me was a detox residence worker named Wendy. She actually runs our ATS, our detox at Danvers now. Um, she was the first person to sit down to me on like the second day of detox and have a conversation with me. And she was the first person that I had a conversation with that I not only did I think long-term sobriety was something that I wanted, but something that I thought was possible for me. Um, and it was just because that one connection, that one connection that left me open enough to have the next connection, and then the next connection, and then the next connection. You string enough of those together, all of a sudden you're sober. Right. That's amazing. And I'm going to wrap up in just a minute, but one thing I, I, I want to ask is I have a lot of, one of the things I, I do in my role here is provide consultation to to supervisors and leadership, and and I do get a lot of people, a lot of um, commanders and stuff that will say like, hey, I'm really worried about this person. I've noticed they kind of shake a little bit or they always miss Mondays or they're looking a little disheveled or, um, or there are some other issues and they're not quite sure how to approach that person. So do you have any advice on if, if you suspect that someone has a problem or an issue, like what is a way that you could approach them? Because a lot of times people will just avoid it because again, they don't want to embarrass them or make them feel shame. But sometimes that honesty or showing concern can be the most loving thing you can do for someone, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always, 
say, I know it's uncomfortable, I know it's painful, but have the conversation. And is just have the conversation. Say, I'm I'm worried about you. Um, and this is tough. So this is a tough one because, especially in a military environment, um, it was hard in a, in a in a technology environment. It's hard in any environment really where um, a lot of your values dependent upon your ongoing reputation um, and and rank and rank here, and yeah. all these things, all these things that come into play, um, all the power structures and the fear in there. So. <clears throat> What, what I really want people to do is start having the conversation. Um, as scary as it is, uncomfortable it is, is, as it is, it's better to have that conversation now. Um, and really say, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I want you to get better because I value you. I want you to get better because I care about you. I want you because you're important to this organization. Um, so what can we do? And it's not always inpatient treatment. You know, I think that's the yeah. thing that people get afraid of. Inpatient treatment isn't always the answer. Um, in fact, if we remove the stigma and have these conversations upstream, there will be less need for inpatient treatment. Yeah, In a perfect world, we wouldn't need this many inpatient treatment beds because we've removed the stigma to the point where we're having these conversations upstream and we're getting out ahead of it. Right. Um, so that people are keeping their jobs, so that people are not losing their families, so that, you know, because that's where that's where we start to actually and not change. losing themselves, you know. Not losing themselves, yeah. Or not losing your life. I mean, this is... I, make no mistake about it. Left untreated, this will kill you. And I don't. I, there's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not an if. It's just a when. It will eventually kill you if it left. If it's left untreated. Yeah. Well, thank you. And what I will do is uh, when we post this podcast, Public Affairs will put your information, and I'm also going to be sending out an <coughs> email, or it may have already been sent out by the time this comes out with with Todd's contact information. So if people want to contact you, is that okay? If Absolutely. they have any questions? I, yeah, I answer my phone unless I'm asleep. So okay. it's seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, unless I'm asleep or temporarily busy, if I'm temporarily busy, I'll get right back to you. doesn't matter if it's 6 a.m. on Christmas morning. Um, you can always call me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. And you can find me on The Global if anyone's interested in certain topics or you want to come on to the podcast, um, please reach out to me. I've also moved offices um, where Aaron Fay and Family Readiness is now. So um, come by and say hello. Thank you. Thank you.